It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 332 for the 3rd of March, 2013. This week, why the TechBiter is an evangelist for backup. Yahoo, once again, goes its own way. In short circuits... Downloading illegal content? If so, your ISP may soon reach out to you. Remember when Instagram was being abandoned by everyone? And worth reading, the enduring myth of the free internet. You might wonder why TechBiter is such an evangelist for backup. Well, here's an example. On Wednesday of last week, Windows Update offered a new version of the drivers for my graphics card. And foolishly, I accepted the offer, even though I've experienced problems previously when Windows updates certain device drivers. This time, there was a problem. A big problem. And the computer was rendered unbootable. This is why I have backup. I tried rolling the change back by booting first to safe mode and then to DOS. Nothing doing. So I brought home from the office the disk drive that contained an image backup of the C drive. The backup was a bit less than a week old, and because I store only the operating system and applications on the C drive, no working files go there. A week old backup really isn't a problem. During the week, I had removed Rapid Drive and installed Microsoft's SkyDrive, so the backup would restore Rapid Drive and I'd need to remove it once again, but I knew that going in. Last September, I wrote about Macrium Reflect Pro, and I said at the time it was a 5-cat application. Well, here's the proof. Macrium Reflect Pro optionally inserts itself into the boot process so that at boot time you have the option of running Reflect to restore an image or files, or running Windows normally. I selected the Reflect option, which starts Windows PE. That's the Windows pre-installation environment, a skinny version of Windows that's used for troubleshooting. Essentially, it replaces the old MS-DOS boot disks, but it does provide a graphical interface. Next, I attached the USB drive that contained the C drive image from a month ago and several incremental backups, the last of which was made last Sunday. After selecting the Restore tab on the Reflect interface and browsing to the last incremental backup file on the USB drive, I told Reflect to restore the image. Fifty minutes later, the computer was back to normal. And yes, it is that simple. Actually, that's the way it should have been. In my case, the process took more than two hours. That's because I thought Reflect worked like so many other backup applications, in that the user is responsible for restoring the full backup and each incremental backup in order. Had I simply selected the most recent incremental file, the related full backup and all incremental backups in between would have been processed automatically. But I didn't. Still, a couple of hours isn't a bad trade-off to bring a damaged computer back to life. So you might be wondering, what the heck happened? 
I downloaded the new video drivers with the intent of installing the update manually, but when I opened the Windows Update section of the control panel to turn off the video updates there, the video update was no longer on the list. NVIDIA has its own application that checks for updates, and when I had the NVIDIA applet in the tray check for updates, it reported the latest version had already been installed. So the NVIDIA application had installed the drivers after I restored the operating system. Aha! What I saw during the failed Windows update suddenly made a lot of sense. The update process had been proceeding normally when suddenly the screen blanked a few times. Now that's normal during a video driver update. But then the computer rebooted without warning, and that's not at all normal. So here's what I think happened. I believe that both Windows and NVIDIA somehow managed to run the update simultaneously. NVIDIA should write its installer application so that one instance will recognize that another instance is already running, but I believe that's what happened here. Either NVIDIA or Windows completed the update, and that completed update was then clobbered by the second process. Attempts to roll back the operating system reported missing files, which seems to suggest exactly that kind of conflict. But determining exactly what happened matters less to me than being able to restore and recover from the problem. That's what backup is for, and that's why I continue to be an evangelist for backup. Here's kind of an amusing side note. I sent a copy of this article before publication date to several people last week, and one of them replied, Too bad you can't get away from Microsoft and use Ubuntu or Apple. Because you have technical expertise, you can figure things out. For the rest of us who are knowledgeable and follow procedures, when there's an operating system application or update issue, when it happens, it's a painful experience. You know, I've used computers that run Ubuntu Linux, and they are subject to problems. I have used Apple computers, and they're subject to problems. I've used Windows computers, and we all know they're subject to technical problems. I have used DEC computers running Ristus. They're subject to technical problems. I've used Atari computers. Yeah, technical problems there, too. Zenith computers running MS-DOS? Yeah, I saw technical problems with those. I've even used IBM 360 mainframes, and they were subject to technical problems. Now, you may notice a certain similarity there. Any mechanical device, such as a computer, that is operated by systems written by humans, such as firmware, operating systems, or applications, are simply going to be subject to failure. The types of failures differ slightly between the various operating systems, but really, there are more similarities than differences. In fact, I've probably had more serious problems with Ubuntu and with Apple's OS X than I've had with Windows. If you listen to any online or over-the-air media this week, you probably heard a lot about Yahoo, which is once again going its own way. At a time when many large and successful companies are actively seeking opportunities for employees to work from home, Yahoo's CEO, Marissa Mayer, says there will be no more of that at Yahoo. Citing speed and quality problems caused by employees who work at home, 
Meyer says you have to show up at the office or find work elsewhere. This has caused a lot of chatter. I have spent several decades working with people who are comfortable allowing employees to work from home when appropriate, and until a few years ago, I usually worked at least one day per week from home. Once, when I was working on a project that required fairly intense concentration, I spent a month working at home, every day. And although I spend most days in the office now, I get there at 6 a.m. and leave at 3. That's because the schedule makes me more productive. In the 30 years I've observed people working from home, I have rarely seen a situation in which speed or quality suffered. If anything, people gave the company extra time by working when they would otherwise be commuting, and productivity actually increased. Now, maybe Yahoo is full of slackers who lounge around their houses all day. Meyer will find out if that's the problem that she's trying to solve, that having every employee at a desk won't really improve things. People who want to loaf instead of work can find highly creative ways to look busy. Some people work from home because they enjoy the freedom to work in their underwear, or play loud music, or take a few moments away from work to check on a child, instead of taking the child to a daycare center. Meyer doesn't have to worry about the daycare aspect because she paid to have a nursery constructed next to her office. Uh, it's easy to be critical of her in a case like this, but it's also important to remember that Meyer comes from Google, and regardless of what you think about Google, it is an incubator for smart people. Yahoo has been in crisis mode for several years, and mismanagement may have created the mess that Meyer inherited. There's no question that interactions in the office, sometimes the ones that aren't planned, are best, but all of them can lead to new understandings and new projects. But totally eliminating the remote work option, while easier to manage than deciding on a case-by-case -case basis, seems to be unlikely to be well-received. The messages that employees have received certainly seem mixed. After providing smartphones for everybody, that's a signal that remote working is good, Meyer then made Yahoo's cafeteria free for employees, a signal that people might want to stay in the office. And now comes this ruling that nobody can work from home. Later, Meyer released a statement that said her decision isn't a broad industry view on working from home and that it is about what is right for Yahoo right now. Does that leave open an option for return to allowing employees to work from home someday? Probably it does. A New York Times article by Claire Kane Miller cites anonymous Yahoo employees who say that the work ethic has deteriorated. If some of the least productive workers leave as a result, the thinking goes, all the better. The article notes that some employees have abused the former policy permitting work at home to the point of founding startups while still being on salary at Yahoo. And if that's the case, well, that's a management failure. The new policy takes effect in June, and by then, all work-at-home employees will need to have made arrangements to work in Yahoo offices. In short circuits, if you're downloading illegal content, your ISP may soon be reaching out to you.
What's called the Copyright Alert System has been put into operation this week. Created by the recording and film industries, the system targets Internet users who share files using peer-to-peer networking applications. If you're one of those people who use any of the top five Internet service providers, you might soon receive a message from your provider. Who are these guys? Well, the participants include AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, Cablevision, and Time Warner. And within AT&T, you get SBC Internet Services, Bell South, Southwestern Bell, Illinois Bell, Indiana Bell, Michigan Bell, Nevada Bell, Ohio Bell, Wisconsin Bell, and the Southern New England Telephone Company. The Copyright Alert System is also known as the Six Strikes Anti-Piracy Program. When you're caught downloading illegal materials from peer-to-peer networks the first time, your ISP is supposed to send you an email that tells you what you're doing is illegal. Do it again, and you'll receive another email that asks you to confirm receipt. In some cases, the ISP may have someone call you. Third and fourth infractions will require that you watch a video about copyright before you're allowed to go back online. And ISPs have different policies for the fifth and sixth incidents. It's worth noting that this is not a government program. Initially, at least, the ISP won't even tell the recording and motion picture industries who you are unless they're compelled to do so by a court order. If you're innocent, though, good luck. You'll have to pay $35 to appeal the ISP's finding, although the fee will be reimbursed if you win. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to a site that explains that entire appeal process. The new process has been in the works for three years. And if you're wondering who you should thank, well, here's the list. Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, Paramount Pictures Corporation, Sony Pictures Entertainment Inc., 20th Century Fox Film Corporation, Universal City Studios, LLC, Warner Brothers Entertainment, Inc., Universal Music Group Recordings, Warner Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment, and EMI Music North America. Oh, and incidentally, ISPs like to think of themselves as common carriers. That's because of the legal advantages that that status provides. But by implementing the copyright alert system they might inadvertently be forfeiting common carrier status. Remember a couple of months ago when Instagram was being abandoned by everybody? Well, apparently everybody came back. The service now reports 100 million members. When Instagram changed its terms of service in a way that would allow it to do anything it wanted to with users' photographs, those users began leaving. Apparently promises to play nice have convinced users to stick around. Co-founder and CEO Kevin Systrom says Instagram has created a community in which the world is more connected and understood through photographs. Instagram started late in 2010. It became popular with smartphone users and was acquired by Facebook in 2012 for $1 billion. In December, though, Instagram changed its terms of service to read, and I quote, A business or other entity may pay us to display your username, likeness, photos, along with any associated metadata and or actions you take in connection with paid or sponsored content or promotions without 
any compensation to you. Foul, shouted users and took their case to various social networks. Systrom, who must have been paying attention in the public relations class in college, quickly responded to point out that Instagram really didn't want to claim ownership of users' photos and immediately rescinded the new terms of service. Although 100 million users is a lot of users, Instagram is still far behind Facebook with its billion users. Both Twitter and LinkedIn say they have at least double the number of subscribers that Instagram has. And Google Plus is ahead of Instagram too, but only by about 35 million users. You might find worth reading an article by Peter Osnos in The Atlantic. It's called The Enduring Myth of the Free Internet. In the article, he points out that information may be free, but people still have to spend a lot of money for access to the Internet in order to obtain the free information. Monthly charges for broadband Internet service plus cable television fees and smartphone bills that together comprise the range of household pleasures and obligations as well as work-related communication that are so embedded in our lives amount to hefty sums, Osnos writes. Often, this is money people can't really afford. Osnos talked to friends and co-workers. One said that she and her boyfriend spend $100 a month on cell phone service and $150 per month on cable for phone, television, and the Internet. Osnos and his wife each pay $85 per month for smartphone service, their cable charges total about $225 a month, so annually they're paying about $5,000 just for access. On top of that, they have to buy the devices that use that free information. So who's winning here? Well, Osno says the leading beneficiaries of all these charges are the big multi-platform companies. Big surprise there. Who are those? Well, Comcast, Time Warner, Verizon, AT&T. With postal delivery in permanent decline, he says, and the inexorable shift to online management of family and business finances, the role of the broadband internet is reaching the stage where anything less than total availability at minimal prices is a matter that deserves far more attention than it's currently getting. Osno points out to one promising initiative, though, at least as it applies to speed and access, Google Fiber is being used in Kansas City as a trial of how fiber from end to end would provide a far faster broadband network than what we have now. But keep this in mind, too. The people who provide the content, they see very little of what people pay for access to the Internet. Osnos is a journalist who spent 18 years at the Washington Post, then became an editor and publisher of books, his company, Public Affairs Books, is a member of the Perseus Books Group, and you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that takes you to the entire article, The Enduring Myth of the Free Internet. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. 
I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.